Okay, is that louder? Okay. So, um, a couple things. One is um, I put sheets just with cliff notes, and then, because um, I am slightly crazy, years ago, this is before cell phones, um, if I went skiing, I always wanted something to read on the chairlift, so I bought these little tiny books. You can buy tiny books. But um, one is Thomas Merton's Thoughts on Solitude. The other one is Thomas Merton's uh, Wisdom of the Desert on Desert Spirituality from last week. Anybody want to borrow these? Or, <laughs> Lydia... Um, and then, uh, let's see, what else? Oh, and then we should probably pray. So, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And this is from St. Patrick's Breastplate. I bind myself today to the power of one through faith in the three. Christ be with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me. Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me. Christ on my right, Christ on my left. Christ where I lie, Christ where I sit, Christ where I arise, Christ in every heart who thinks of me, Christ in every mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. That's just a tiny part of um, uh, St. Patrick's breastplate. So, um... Today's class is on Celtic spirituality. Here's some Celtic crosses I have. Um, please, you can pass them around if you want to look at them. Please don't steal them. Um, I'm just saying I know some of you people. Um, so uh, this is on Celtic spirituality. So um, you know how I said on this history of spirituality, I'm kind of doing my favorites, but one is Celtic spirituality. So like, if I had to describe my spirituality, it is 5% desert um, monks, but also 5% Celtic. Um, but the problem with Celtic is this. If we're going to look for wisdom, I think there's this reservoir of wisdom that we can gain from uh, Celtic spirituality. Now, in Celtic spirituality, I'm not really going to focus on one particular person, because you think I'd be focusing all on St. Patrick, but and this may shock you, St. Patrick was Italian. He wasn't Irish. Um, what's that? No. Yeah, I know it's upsetting. Um, anyhow, uh, it's not one figure, but the Desert Fathers do play uh, actually a large part in Celtic spirituality, which I know sounds strange, but there's this TV program that uh, went under, and it was called uh, The Big Idea, and it was an interesting view of history where they'd take, it was kind of random. It wasn't linear. It would be, this big idea happens over here. And you know what happened when you thought of that? That affect that country and changed that part of history. And that, lo and behold, changed this over here. So I love that idea that, wow, ideas in history do bounce all over the place. So I want to jump ahead about 500 years 400 years to Celtic spirituality. Um, now, Celtic spirituality, I think it could be really good for our parish. But here's my criticism of Delta, uh, desert spirituality. Desert spirituality focuses on the experience of Christ in oneself. That's where you look is inside yourself. Um, 
Celtic spirituality is a little bit different. Um, Celtic spirituality is about the community, not the self. And so in Celtic Ireland, um, uh, in every church and monastery, uh, a fire was kept burning in the church day and night, summer and winter, as a sign of God's presence. Of course, it's a cold country. But at Caldir, which is the site of St. Bridget's convent, they say the fire was sustained there uninterrupted for a thousand years. Um, I mean, they change a fire, but they'd keep a little bit of it, like the Olympic flame. And I like that, because that's a symbol of the passion of faith that burst forth in these remote islands in the 5th and 7th century. So um, while the rest of Europe was entering into the dark ages of conflict and division, the fall of the Roman Empire, the gospel was being lit in the hearts of these rugged Celtic tribal men. And so, this sounds kind of strange, thousands of simple men and women became monks and missionaries in pilgrimages. So, this sounds kind of strange. From um, uh, In the 500s, or even before that, 400s, um, uh, Ireland started to, uh, was early evangelized. You'd think Ireland being way up there would be one of the least places, but it was uh, evangelized, and then from Ireland, missionaries were sent towards um, northern Europe. And so, the shocking part is there's early evidence that Christianity was in the British Isles and southern uh, England, and that's because the Romans were there. There was a Roman village in Chetworth that was built around 180 AD, and it, uh, they found Christian monograms, so it was used as a church. And there's some archaeological evidence that Christianity was actually in the islands before that. Tortullian in North Africa wrote a, uh, in the 200s of places in Britain that were under Christian influence. But here's the big but. Um, Christianity never really took root in, uh, with the Irish. It was only with the Germans. The majority of Christians were either Roman colonists or Britons who had adopted um, Roman attitudes and customs. For the Celts, they consider um, uh, they were oppressed by the Romans in some ways. So they considered Catholicism the religion of the oppressor, no different than the ancient Roman gods. Um, so Rome had changed, given up the, the Roman gods to. Uh, Catholicism, God, except for the Celts, they considered it no different. They're still an oppressive people. So when the Roman Empire fell in the 5th century, um, Anglo-Saxons, uh, Anglos and Saxons, swept across the south, and Christianity virtually disappeared. Only a handful of Christian enclaves remained in the hills of Wales. Um, just a reminder, that's a problem when you tie religion too closely to the state order. It always, in the 2,000 years of our history, it always ends up in disaster. And I warn that because sometimes I think people today, um, I really do think they equate too much Christianity at, with Americana. Uh, but like the Irish, if you tie it too closely to state order, um, it'll simply fall apart. And so the Irish, will offer this different solution. It's tied to a community, but not to a political ideology. 
And by the 5th century, there's new Christian missionaries that enjoyed astonishing success among the Celts. Um, The Romans could never conquer the Celts. They're unconquerable. Ireland, in fact, um, never really attacked any other country, but was itself unconquerable. But for the Irish, um, they weren't impressed with the Romans. Religion for them was these bishops uh, being paraded around in a lot of gold. So they just thought it was the religion of the oppressor. But this time, you do have the mission of St. Patrick that made huge inroads into Ireland. But Iris, uh, sorry, Patrick's um, uh, evangelization of Ireland, he wasn't the only one. Um, what evangelized Ireland, this is a really big point, was really these barefoot monks that were trotting along muddy lanes. And it was the sincerity of their evangelization that converted the Irish, not bishops arrayed in gold. Um, And so, like, this sounds kind of strange. Ireland was early evangelized, and its Catholicism was a little bit different. This sounds strange. In the 5th to 7th century, Ireland had this golden age of spirituality. Um, And how did they do it? What made them different? Now, I think we can learn some stuff from our parish. Um, And there's some sources to this. Um, One of the sources of the Celtic fire was, believe it or not, um, the ancient Druid religion. That there's all these numerous accounts of even Patrick uh, going in direct contest contest to the Druid priest uh, to see who who was... Uh, truth And so the climax of Patrick's mission to Ireland and Columbus, Columba to the Picts were these arguments, these battles. And that fit well into pre-Christian Irish culture. So this sounds kind of strange. They loved the debate. Um, and far from rejecting the old religion, the Celts simply absorbed many Christian ideas and attitudes and symbols and rituals into their own faith. Druid philosophy placed a heavy emphasis on love and forgiving other people. Um, So the missionaries could use that. Um, So conversion to Christianity involved really uh, not so much moral change, but theological change. Going back to the debates is that the Druids didn't really have a catechism. There were Druids, but they weren't really... um, They had no catechism, no formal theology, no formal ritual. And so Christian missionaries would go to the king, just like Patrick did, go to the king, and having studied the kingdom uh, and the Irish culture, the Celtic culture, they would ask for a debate in front of the king. Now, if the debate could go really bad for the missionary, if you lost the debate, you'd end up dead. (laughs) So there's a price. (laughs) But they weren't afraid to debate. And so they would ask for these debates with the um, Druids. And the Druids, as I said, they were not really that well-educated. Um, they mostly appealed to emotional drama. And if there was a problem, they would call for a sacrifice. But there was no common theology or education or catechism. And so each Druid kind of had this loose philosophical ideas, but it wasn't really examined or thought thought through. Druids uh, didn't have a regular prayer calendar, 
uh, mostly the winter and summer uh, equinox. And so the these uh, people would they evangelize, but they would love to argue. Um, now, that says something about evangelizing, I think, even in northern Idaho. Uh, challenging is a great way. Condemning people for their culture or their ideas is not. Uh, the early missionaries, they challenged, but they didn't condemn. Um, what came from Christ, they kept. What was opposed to Christ, they tried to do away with. And so, this sounds kind of strange, Patrick, when he evangelized the Celts, he didn't make them little uh, Roman citizens. And believe it or not, he got criticism for that. But the Celts were allowed to keep a lot of their cultural practices because Patrick believed if it doesn't interfere with Christ or religion, why would we change it? Now, this is going to be a constant debate in 2,000 years, that if you evangelize somebody, you have to act like me or my culture. Patrick didn't do that. Um, I'm not going to spend time with Patrick, too much with Patrick, unless you really want me to. But this sounds kind of strange. Even the Druids had this um, prophecy about one who was to come, and that's Christ. It worked a lot like, you know the story about um, DeSmit coming to Idaho, right? Where DeSmit came to Idaho before the, even the Jesuits showed up. The medicine men had dreamed of this new power that men in black robes would come and offer them a new power. So they evangelized the people before the uh, Jesuits even stepped foot in this area. They were open to being evangelized. Some of the Druids had the same thing about one who is to come. The other part about Celtic spirituality was the clan mentality. And this is the part that I really love, is that the Celts had a spirituality that mixed with the culture. It supported the culture. Um, it was weaved into their daily life and culture. Their culture and their spirituality resulted in this missionary activity that evangelized the rest of Europe. So this sounds kind of strange. Um, I am not saying religion and politics should be put together. And I don't think religion should be a reflection of our, cul uh, our culture. I think it should be a light to it. Not condemning it, but bringing out the best parts. This is the problem I have with the desert monks. As much as I admire them for flee the world, that's a great mentality. Flee the world. Um, you don't have to, uh, you, need, you need to reject the way the world works. That doesn't work if you're a parish priest. Um, I'm part of the world. Um, I want my community to be part of the world. Does that make sense? Now, I do want us to flee the world during Lent by cutting out every bit of nonsense. Um, but, so a desert spirituality doesn't really work in a parish setting. Elements of it does. But um, it was the community and the clan that actually converted everybody. Um, and the Celts had this, and I'm going to get into this in a second, this idea that the whole community should have these memorized prayers and rituals that knit us together. Um, that's actually really brilliant. Um, so it's the community that evangelizes. So the whole clan, once they're evangelized, uh, it allowed this golden age. And so... I want to give you an example of what I mean. Um, so in my former parish at uh, Holy Apostles, 
It's a mega parish. Mega, mega. It was the largest parish in Idaho, in the history of Idaho. So we had about 9,000 parishioners. But, and it sounds strange, even though it's a big church, it felt like a small church. Like it was really, had a lot of community to it. And that's where I put a lot of my effort was in community. Um, getting people connected to each other. Not me. I, this sounds kind of strange. I'm an extreme introvert. I don't want to be. <laughs> uh, like, you know, like some priests will come in and they'll go to everybody's home. So they're popular with individual families. But that's a big mistake if I don't have your family fall in love with that family connected to this family. Does that make sense? As a parish priest, you don't want to be the center. You want the community to be the center. So we put a lot of effort into community and evangelization, small faith communities, um, doing a lot of stuff together, getting people to fall in love with each other. And we had the largest RCA group in the United States one year. We had 200 people become Catholic. And nobody gets that. And every year, we're around 100, 150 people. Um, that's Every year, you got to be kidding, for 14 years? That's a huge amount of evangelization. So, um, but it was all the community. And then, uh, because we were one of the places in the United States with the largest RCA group. And so, and this is kind of embarrassing, never heard anything from the diocese. But, but I, not that I'm hurt by that, but uh, like, just kind of like, not a like, wow, what are you guys doing or anything like that. But, um, there, what's that? Yeah, I don't, I, I do what I do. But this bishop in California had heard that we're one of these RCI centers with huge amounts. So he calls me one day, and he calls me to say, yeah, I just hear you guys are having great success in evangelization. So he said, um, I was wondering if you could send us your syllabus. You betcha. Now, what is wrong with that statement? Um, do you really think anybody converts to Catholicism because they read the syllabus? You know, they met other people. Does that make sense? Um, so this sounds kind of strange. That reminds me of Celtic spirituality. Celtic Ireland um, had this golden age of spirituality, but it was the clan, the community, that kept the conversion alive and hot and running and spills over into Northern Europe. It's not the priest. It's not just St. Patrick. It's the community. So the clan worship and loyalty to the clan, that worked really well with spirituality. Um, uh, sorry, I need to change. Oh, I, I think I put this in the wrong place. I'm going to show you some pictures. Um, the other thing is that... Um, um, <laughs> what? Uh, the... <laughs> the Irish were a little bit different. I just want to mention this, is that uh, the clan was the most important. And the Irish were different because men and women enjoyed equal status in Ireland. Um, that's going to shock you, but... So, like, there, there's a reason why in Northern Europe a queen could end up ruling, like Queen Elizabeth, and not in Southern Europe. Southern Europe, I'm sorry, do not treat women that well. But I, even pre-Christian Ireland, women had the most amount of rights. 
a woman in Ireland, in pre-Christian Ireland, they could divorce a husband for various reasons. That was unheard of. Um, a woman could become a judge and a leader. Does that make sense? Women and men had equal rights. And that's going to confuse you a little when it comes to um, Celtic Ireland because that's unlike the rest of um, Ireland, sorry, the rest of Europe. And so you have... Um, uh, that's going to be a little bit different. Oh, I want to show. This is St. Bridget of Ireland. And so um, now I'll have my opinion. So I want to explain how this works with St. Bridget. Is that um, there's great stories. She was baptized by St. Patrick, but um, uh, just kind of funny. When she was a child, her father uh, sold her into slavery because she kept giving away things to the poor. Um, and then a day later, the guy returns with the girl, St. Bridget, and wants his money back because <laughs> she was too stubborn. So this sounds kind of strange. St. Bridget, she was this great mystic of Ireland. Um, she was this great mystic of Ireland. My favorite story of St. Bridget is... Um, is she was baptized by St. Patrick, and you know, St. Patrick dutifully gets all the credit. But it was really Bridget that ran Ireland. Um, and that's very common among Irish women. Um, they run everything. So Bridget, she was this great mystic, and um, she, no, trust me, um, she starts these monasteries throughout Ireland. Now, Ireland, their Catholicism is different than ours. It was monastic. And so um, she was the great abbess of Ireland. And it sounds kind of strange, but um, like one of her mystics, the reason why she holds fire, is remember, um, her mysticism deals a lot with fire. So um, she was once in this empty meadow, and I love this one. She was in this empty meadow, and she was praying next to a lake. And she had suddenly... Um, she says to God, she says, show me heaven. And God says, oh, heaven is so much different than anything you can imagine. I can't show you heaven, but I can show you what heaven is like. And then suddenly there is this burning dew, this fire everywhere in the field, in this meadow. Um, and for the ancient Celts, fire was a sign of the divine. And the fire was everywhere. And then in the fire appeared hundreds and hundreds of people laughing and dancing and feasting and celebrating. And she said, and it all happened next to a lake full of beer. Because um, <laughs> beer for the Irish are, is a sign of joy. And then the vision ended. And she got what it meant. The vision means you could be in an empty meadow by yourself and somehow all those in heaven, they're there with you. And so she would tell her monks and nuns who evangelized, don't, don't spend your life in anger, counting misfortunes or wrongs. You cut yourself off from the great feast. So she's always holding fire, but often holding um, this uh, St. Bridget's cross. As her dad was dying, he converts, and she takes reeds and make a cross. And uh, so on the feast of St. Bridget, you'd make one of those crosses, and you'd put on your door. But actually, what it is, and this sounds strange, in the Celtic world, it first was a sunburst. Um, and Bridget was this sunburst of patron saint of poetry and literature 
and dairy products. Um, we'll just throw that in. But um, it was this, she was this burst of uh, spirituality. Now, here's another icon, and this is going to be really common of St. Bridget, is she's holding a bishop's uh, staff, and sometimes, many times, she's wearing a miter. And you think, well, why is St. Bridget wearing a miter or holding a staff? Well, um, this sounds kind of strange. Some people say that she was ordained a bishop. That's not really a lot of scholarship to support that. But, it sounds strange. Remember, the Celts believed in equality between men and women. And she was the powerful abbess. And their monasteries had just not like nuns and on once, you know, uh, just nuns. Their monasteries had men and women in it, just like the early Desert Fathers. The Celts were highly influenced by the Desert Monks. And so their monasteries had men and women that lived in it together. And um, I'll get into the sec, but she was the one who would name who's going to be bishops of monastery, or sorry, of diocese. So um, this sounds kind of strange. Women are going to hold a really uh, high part. Um, oh, that's Celtic cross. Um, so, just some more pictures. So, uh, I'll skip that. I was going to explain. This is St. Patrick. Actually, he, um going to tell you his story real quick. St. Patrick was actually Roman. His And I love the story. His dad, his, sorry, his grandfather was a priest. Remember this time, priests could get married. Um, his grandfather was a priest. His dad was a deacon. But as a teenager, he wanted nothing to do with religion. Who would ever have found a teenager like that? Um, but he's down at the beach praying. Um, no, not praying. He's not praying. He's down at the beach with friends, and Celtic pirates come and capture them all and sell, sell them off into slavery. He's brought to Ireland as a slave. He spends years uh, as a slave. He learns a Celtic language. But to be honest... That was a place of abuse. And he uh, had to, um, he became a shepherd, but he was out in the cold, and suddenly he remembers everything his father and grandfather taught him. So he says, I prayed hundreds and hundreds of prayers per day. Night and day, I was praying. Um, and so later on, he said, You know, I always feel more comfortable praying outside than in a cathedral, because it's outside where I first really discovered God in this prison of slavery. And one day he hears a voice, and the voice tells him to get up and walk, and as long as he follows the voice, the voice would lead him to freedom. Now, the Irish would do horrible things to slaves that tried to escape, but he just followed the voice, and it ends up at the ship, and um, gets on the ship, he ends up being reunited with his family, they're in uh, Gaul, Spain, no, Gaul is France. Uh, so, He's in France. Um, he becomes a priest. He's very, very happy. Oh, his mother, by the way, is um, a relative, the son of uh, St. Vincent, um, the Roman soldier who cut his cloak. Uh, anyhow, St. Vincent. Anyhow, uh, she comes from a pedigree too, but he's very happy he's with his family, he's a priest, except the voice returns. And the voice asks him to return to Ireland. And he does not want to return to Irish. This sounds kind of strange. He hated the Irish. 
that was a place of abuse for him. But the voice comes back. And then the voice comes back and lets him hear the uh, prayers of the children's children, children of the Irish, thanking him. So I just love that because on St. Patty's Day, he hears my voice. Prayers work in the future, but they also affect the past. So Patrick goes. Now there was one priest, uh, sorry, bishop who went before him, but that the bishop that went before Patrick, um, um, he wanted a posh, comfortable life, and so he only lasted a very short time and went running with his legs, the tail between his legs. Um, Patrick goes, but Patrick is used to harshness and rejection. And he goes, and uh, he already speaks Irish. He knows their culture. He uses their stories and language to evangelize them. And he, um, uh, once again, he goes and has debates. And of course, you know, uh, he goes, now, this sounds kind of strange. I just want to point this out. This is not how St. Patrick would have looked. This is a medieval bishop. Does that make sense? Um, this sounds kind of strange, but um, that's not how bishops would have looked in the early centuries. In fact, Irish priests and monks, Irish monks would shave the front of their head. That was their tonsure, not the back. They'd shave the front, and then they'd have their hair in a, like a long ponytail and back. I'm thinking about doing that. So it's like... <laughs> Balled up front, party in back. Um, so, um, uh, actually, and the Irish, uh, for ordinary time, didn't wear green, they wore brown. I like that one because I just like this image of St. Patty's Day. Go home, snakes, you're drunk. Um, I found this one. I think this is what St. Patrick, if it really looks like, if you went to a bar. Um, <laughs> Clearly, that's St. Patrick. Um, but the point being is that um, uh, the, the clan culture, women, it made a different type of spirituality. The other really big one is the desert monks. This sounds kind of strange, but um, after St. Patrick, the missionaries of Ireland were offshoots from the teachings of the desert uh, monks. The desert monks will be wiped out in war, but their missionaries, lo and behold, many of them go to Ireland. And the desert monks' saying and their stories were hugely popular with the Celts. The Celts love their quirky sense of humor and stubborn individualism of the monks. And so, think about this. The Celtic church had a monastic influence. How the Celtic church worked was not really by diocese, but monasteries, because it was monks who evangelized them. And even St. Patrick, despite his influence by Roman ideas, the political structure of the European church never functioned well in Ireland. It just didn't speak to their spiritual, clan spirituality. Monasteries did. And so it was abbots and uh, abbesses of local religious leaders in their communities that really put the influence on tribalism. Um, so it was a lot of the desert spirituality was the root of Celtic spirituality. The Celts had this rich artistic life. They loved stories, metalwork, and they preferred to express their faith in stories and poetry rather than theological tracts. Well, that works great with the desert monk sayings. So reading stories... Um, as a way of spiritual growth, 
really struck the literary Irish. Like my dad used to always say, why more than any other country has Ireland produced so many writers? Just culturally, they love um, uh, stories. And so on Celtic crosses, um, it's carved out of stone, but they, in many Celtic crosses, they'll have a picture of St. Patrick and St. Anthony hugging each other, greeting each other. And you have to think, well, historically, that's impossible. They were separated by a couple hundred years. Why would Patrick and St. Anthony of the desert be hugging on the top of a cross? Because that was a birth of Celtic spirituality. Does that make sense? Like, they're an, they really have, were affected by um, the desert monks. Um, the Celts were of and in the world, so they did continue to reject the pomp and circumstance of Roman liturgy, but the Celts were very earthly and incarnational. Uh, the theology of flee the world, you're on an island, <laughs> didn't work for them. Um, Christ for them would not be found in priests and bishops layered in lace and gold, but uh, they would say you need to avoid those things. So um, the effect is that um, Celtic spirituality was very incarnational. I'm going to use the word incarnational. Um, they imported the Desert Fathers in a totally new climate and created it with a unique twist. Unlike the Desert Fathers, the Celts were far too involved in the world to withdraw from the world. But like the monks, um, or sorry, uh, but, um, they had no love of pomp and circumstance, but also um, they had no fear of the material world. Um, this, one of the weaknesses of the desert monks, have you noticed? M many of the desert monks, they could talk to animals like St. Francis, but it was really the Celts that loved nature. So that's a little bit different than Desert Fathers. They were attuned to the fact that the world is so sacred that spirituality is not just found on one's knees, but how Christ is lived in the daily life. And so they were far too involved in the world. Um, so a sin for the Celtic spirituality is the abuse of the thing. So like for whiskey, the desert monks would never drink alcohol. The Celts were not afraid of that. Um, but they would never say that the whiskey is evil. They would say the way you use whiskey is evil. Nothing is evil. Nothing in God's creation is evil. It's just how you use it. Um, so it's a different spirituality. And so the Celts never compartmentalized the world and religion as two different things. And that was the brilliance of their spirituality. Um, spirituality and the world are in the same thing, and so you'd want to look for it. There's no separation between sacred and profane. So all experiences of creation speak about Christ. And so, um, this sounds kind of strange. I lost the book. I just assumed somebody stole it because I don't lose things. Um, <laughs> but I have this book of Irish Celtic spirituality. Oh, anyhow... Um, and I'm happy somebody has it. I probably, in all honesty, I loaned it out and probably not gave it back. But I'm not going to reread it. I just so loved it. But they had, uh, I'll speak about this, like all these ancient prayers. And this one prayer, speaking of being very incarnational, was a prayer for consecration. Concentration. And just the opening of it is a little shocking, so I'm just going to tell you. 
the opening is, you know, uh, oh God, my thoughts run off like naughty little children to distant cities filled with big bosom women. Um, <laughs> very incarnational, right? Um, and you can't read that and not giggle. And then it ends with this plea that even though his thoughts run off, the, his heart's heart's desire is oneness with God. Keep him here, concentrating. But that when I say incarnational, they were not afraid to just kind of mention very earthly things, and you get it a lot in their prayers. Um, and so um, there's also the story of St. Columba, um, who taught in moderation, and there's a story that uh, Columba, when he first um, uh, was head of this monastery, he tried to be severe, that we've got to be above the material world. That's very desert spirituality. And so he believed in constant fasting, and the only thing he ate was nettle soup. And, uh, and then he found out uh, that just to bolster his health, the other monks were adding milk into his soup that he didn't know, so it was cream. Ba- like, how the hell did you know that? Um, <laughs> so he was bragging that yeah, he can fast the most, but they're just adding stuff into his soup. And he said, I deserve it, because out of my pride, I tried to be different. Um, and God humbled me. So Columba spoke, we should be intense about God, but not severe. So you need moderation. Um, so, uh, anyhow, he ordered then from all monks should eat proper nutritious meals. Um, the other part about the uh, monastic influence, the Celts had a very different ecclesiology than we would have. Ecclesiology is basically how you do church. So remember, Patrick was, was not necessarily the first, but certainly the most famous when he goes to Ireland in the 400s. And by his death, most of Ireland was converted. That's just amazing what one flame can do. Um, But as powerful as St. Patrick was, the Celts never liked the Roman diocesan system. That's how the Roman Empire worked. That's how we work today. They preferred their priests in muddy chapels and hermits in caves that taught by humble example. And so the heart of the uh, Celtic fire was the monastery. it usually started off with one holy monk, which would then draw other people. And think about this. Monks, unlike the rest of Europe, they enjoyed a high degree of freedom. Um, but their focus was on simplicity. So the abbots and priests were spiritual guides to seek advice from, not to rule over a diocese. So early missionaries um, were mendicant, which means they took vows of poverty, uh, and then moved on. The Celts appreciated that. They did not like anything that spoke of the pomp and circumstance of Rome. Um, And most bishops all came from monasteries. If you study Irish early uh, history, monasticism started from Wales and then moved into Ireland. Um, And most bishops were all abbots. Um, And abbots had far more power than bishops. Monasteries were centers of learning. That's always been the case. Monasteries were these um, huge centers of learning. So Ireland at this age was called the the island of saints and scholars. Um, So 
That, and I'll get into that in a second. That's very true. Um, monasteries believed in education, were centers of education. Um, so like St. Kevin, I think I have a picture of him. Um, Bridget. Um, oh, <clears throat> that's St. Bridget's Cross. I mentioned that before. Um, I think this is St. Kevin. Oh, no, that's Finbar. Well, okay. Sorry. Well, anyhow, St. Kevin, um, he also lived as a hermit, very close to nature. His companions were animals and birds. And he lived as a hermit for seven years, wearing only animal skins and sleeping on stones. Uh, he went barefoot most of the time, prayed most of the time. And disciples were soon attracted to St. Kevin and uh, then enclosed the hermitage in a wall seven uh, near a lakeside. But what attracted people to St. Kevin was like St. Francis, he could talk to um, animals. And then there's, um, this is Finbar. Um, Finbar was tontured, uh, he had white, white hair, that's what the word Finbar means. But he was this hermit. People are attracted to him. He starts a monastery in Cork, and then Cork today is a major city. Um, but Finbar taught that everyone should learn, that his monastery should be a center of learning. Or there's St. Kieran. Uh, I think I have an icon of him. Um, St. Kieran. I'm not even sure. Anyhow, St. Kieran. Um, he was accused of being too generous to the poor, so he was forced to leave uh, by the monks because he was excessive in his charity. And then he goes to the island of Innes Agen, Hare Island, with eight companions and migrated to the spot on um, the Shannon River and starts a monastery that for years were, were, was renowned as the center of learning and miracles. And so my point being is that um, the Celtic spirituality um, was very monastic. This is different than the Roman diocesan system. They rejected, the Celts rejected the Roman diocesan system. And then at one point, St. Augustine of England, he comes over to Ireland and they have this huge meeting that they've got to uh, conform to the diocesan system rather than the monastic system. And um, the Celts were unsure. So they go to this unnamed hermit who is known for his holiness, and they ask the hermit. And the hermit says, I don't know what God wants. He says, but this is how you can tell. If Augustine has your best interests of heart, when you come in, he'll stand. He'll show you respect. If he doesn't show you respect, then he's only interested in his agenda. So Augustine, who is a little bit of a coward, decides, well, I'm going to really overpower the Irish. So when the Irish come in, he refuses to get up. He refuses to show any hospitality, and he berates them and goes in this long diatribe on what's wrong with them. And the Irish just sat there. And then they tell him the story that, you know, when we entered, you offered us, you didn't stand, you offered us no hospitality. So we'll not trust that you have our best interests. Um, and it was several hundred years before Ireland finally voted to move over to the Austin system. But it was monastic. Does that make sense? Um, 
I just think that's kind of interesting because when people say, well, you got to do it this way, well, I don't know. Um, Ireland worked differently, and I do think the diocesan system is best, that the whole world on the church works the same way, but the Irish worked a different way. Um, and so what I want to offer is, uh, and it's there in the notes, the ingredients of a Celtic spirituality. So first is the Celts' love of ritual prayer. So the Celts, remember I said the thing that made them bloom is the community. And the Celts had these ritual prayers, prayers throughout the day. Um, that, and think about this. The whole clan, all of us, would do it at the same time. The moment you saw a sunrise, everybody would genuflect and say one prayer, a short little prayer. At dawn, when you see the um, sun go down, you immediately say a prayer. There's a prayer for when you light a candle, a prayer when you blow out a candle, um, a prayer before meals. And these prayer forms weave throughout the day to tie everybody not only to God, but each other. Now, what's really interesting, this is how Jesus would have grown up. That the Jews had the same thing. If you're Jewish and you grew up at the time of Christ, you would have had hundreds of memorized prayers. And Jewish prayers always start the same way. Blessed are you, Lord God of all creation, through your goodness. And you would say, uh, through your goodness, you, if you saw a flower, through your goodness, you weave beauty into the world. If you saw, so they had all these hundreds of prayers. The Celts did the same thing. For sunrises, for all these little rituals and prayers, like when you rinse, rinsed your face in the morning, you'd rinse it three times in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Like, I, still, I do that because I love it. And there's this uh, bureaucrat from England who would go out and collected all these prayers. And he put it in this book car called the Carmen de Gaelica of all these hundred memorized prayers that the whole community would just say together throughout the day um, whenever you would see something. So I know this sounds like they... All these common prayers, it knitted the community together that everything, whether it's a blooming flower or the first bloom, everybody would have had this. So it was really a whole community every day praying together um, just when you'd see something. The second thing is the Celtic love of creation. They're very sensitive to creation and animals. Because, yeah, I don't know if you know this, but the Celts, they live really... Um, I don't know if I have a picture. I think I do. Oh, that's the their book of Celts. This is the Celts. Um, so they're kind of wild. It does remind me of a staff meeting. But the Celts lived in these walled compounds. And the walled compounds usually was uh, near a water source. But think about this. They lived a lot like the American Indians. So a lot of their stories deal with animals. Um, animals were used to draw people's attention to the holy. And so their literature has all these stories of saints, uh, like St. Francis, speaking and talking with animals and insects. It was a hound, a robin, and a robin who led St. Mungo to build his monastery and cathedral in what now is Glasgow. Uh, they're the three founders of the city. It was a wild boar, a fox, and a badger, and a doe, who joined St. Piran for the first monastery in Cornwall. That's right, the Cornish people, you'll see those symbols. Um, it was a cow that attracted people to join uh, St. Kevin. And so the Irish believed, and this is very Catholic, that nature was a sacred book, that you could read the glories of God and see God's face, that nature was a sec 
a sacred book, just as the Bible is a sacred book. In fact, they put nature up equivalent to the Bible. That nature is also where God reveals himself. Um, so St. Uh, Columbanus said, nature indicates the closeness of God to us. Therefore, God is everywhere, utterly vast and everywhere near at hand, according not to his own witness. He said, I am the God at hand and not far off. So nature was his second revelation. So he said, seek no further concerning God. For those who wish to know the great deep must first review the natural world. So all creation was trying to bring people to God. Now, this sounds kind of strange. The, the Celts weren't pantheists. They're not saying God is nature. They're saying nature can teach you about God. They saw the beauties of nature as a mirror to the glories of heaven. So Celtic Christianity, the whole world, saw within every living creature some divine spark that spoke about God without ever running into heresy. So it's not a new theology, it's a different theology. And they used nature as part of the prayers. They believed every part of nature held some virtue that could proclaim the goodness of God. Um, this is a little bit different than like the desert monks that were concerned about the fallen state of uh, men. Uh, the Celts believed prayer could facilitate one's nature with God. And I don't have the prayer because it was in the book that I loaned. That I think I loaned it to Lydia and she didn't give it back. But um, <laughs> like, no, the, the prayers, of, prayers are incredibly beautiful. And there's this really long prayer that... I can't quote exactly, but you'll get the point. Now, and the point is this. It's, it's this long litany of I am's. Now, you know the name of God is I am. So uh, it starts with this prayer to see God in nature. And then it says, I am the strength of the salmon uh, running uphill. I am the stubbornness of the boar. I am the... the uh, something about mighty oak, that, you know, unbending mighty oak. I am as flexible as the grass. I am as intimate as an ant to the earth. I am as above you as the hawk is in the sky. And it just goes on all these different animals. Does that make sense? Um, all display some image of God. But I always love that. I am the strength of the salmon swimming up. Um, so, uh, so second was their love of nature. Third was um, their love of learning. If you ever re read the book, How the Irish Saved Civilization, um, basically it was the monks. Uh, the monks collected all these books in all monasteries. Ireland was very monastic. Um, uh, collected all these books. That's how they saved civilization, was through learning. So uh, Colin Bonas brought the idea of learning. St. Aidan believed everybody should be studying something every day. So the monasteries in Ireland uh, collected and preserved literature and became these educational centers when the rest of Europe was falling into the Dark Ages and uneducation. Uh, it just shows their love of learning. And like this is the, from the Book of Kells. It shows their reverence towards the Bible. Um, so anyhow, um, so they had this great love of learning. Fourth, they had a love of solitude. And this sounds kind of strange. You'll hear hermits playing a lot. But like Christ, the Celts 
believe that you should go away for periods of solitude to pray. So the Celts were kind of natural hermits that sought the lonely places, especially in Lent. They would try and withdraw. That's very much of the Desert Fathers. And they believe that the solitary or the hermit, and I love this, they believe that the hermit or the solitary person, just times of solitude, they actually gave back to the community. But in times of solitude, you become this anchor to the community. That the normal life is so overrun with busyness and materialism, a little time apart, and your spirituality gains some heaviness. That you're not carried about away with a lot of latest gossip. So they would say, we need people to go away as hermits sometime, to stabilize the community. And like, let's face it, the church can be seduced into the business of measuring out our values that we've got to get another program in and we're only as good as our work. Uh, modern parishes are usually just sometimes a treadmill of programs. But shouldn't there be times where everybody goes into solitude? Um, the activity of the world can kind of believe that you have to always be producing. So uh, the Celts said, and this is very, I, uh, sorry, Catholic, there's three types of martyrdom. Red martyrdom is where you get murdered. White martyrdom is service, uh, monastery. And green martyrdom is where you go into solitude and seek your place of resurrection. Isn't that kind of like, I, I love that, the green martyrdom. Um, the fifth is the Celts' love of journey. This is called peregrinatio. That they believe that you should not only go as a um, hermit, but you should also take a pilgrimage. And before you go on a journey, you pray that you find God in every place that you lie down and rise up. Um, and so this sounds kind of strange. It was the Celtic monks that found Iceland before the Vikings. Columba found the Iona community, and nobody goes to such a lonely place without an intention. And so they had this passionate conviction that they were guests of the world. And so uh, usually during Lent, you should go into exile and seek your place of resurrection. So you have like St. Brendan would take um, a, a journey with his monks on a boat, if you remember that. And I really do believe, National Geographic, I think, proved it. St. Brendan and his companions, they discovered America before anybody else. They have the story that I, the Celts had these leather boats. And if you read St. Brendan's journey, which was a page turner in the Middle Ages, um, said whales would come up and rub their backs against the boats. And they heard these squawkings and they heard, um, oh, smelt uh, at one point rotten eggs. And then they find this new land and um, it's lush and green and it comes back. Well, anyhow, it was just seen as a myth. But then in... National Geographic, Sky builds one of these leather boats. And guess what happens? Whales did come up and rub their backs against the boat. And he proved you could go from Ireland to North America uh, in one of these boats. And like the journal is kind of interesting. The squawking was actually these birds um, off of, I don't know, Iceland. Or um, the smell was the volcanoes. Uh, does that make any sense? Like, um, so... Uh, Anyhow, uh, you'd have to um, uh, go on a journey. Um, and it's not just restlessness. Right? So the book of Lismore, 
the book of Lismore names three types of journey that you can make in your life. One is escapism, where you leave your own country, but you can't come back exactly the same. And that's a terrible journey. Uh, second one is to leave the familiar be, uh, behind to experience Christ in new ways. That it, uh, if you go with an open heart, you can find Christ in new people and new places. The third type of journey, and this sounds kind of strange, is um, that for whatever reason you can never leave, so you're just your heart is open to discover new virtues. But they believe everybody should um, always take a journey sometime in life. And they said to become stagnant is to die, and to change is to live. And so the Irish, the Celtic blessing uh, for a blessing is the open gate, meaning that you'll find new things. A curse in the Celtic world is to enter into a field and never be able to leave. So the curse of life is that you've never changed. Um, and so you take pilgrimages. Uh, the sixth one is the Celtic love of the cross. And so I put those, and I want them back, those Celtic crosses. Um, just to explain the Celtic cross, um, it sounds strange. In Celtic Ireland, remember, everything was the clan, and um, uh, each clan lived in this walled compound. Uh, what's that? A fort? Hell fort? Oh, hill fort, yeah. Um, but uh, there were these walled, but like, what do you call it? Palisades? Is that, is that the right? No, it's not Palisades. You know, like uh, American forts with the pointed stockade? Is that what it is? I thought that's where you go when you're bad. Um, do you know what I mean? Anyhow, um, and so if, this sounds kind of strange, if one clan wants to attack another clan, they're heavily into trees. Every clan had a sacred tree. So if that clan, and they're bad, uh, if they attack this clan, uh, what they would do is cut down the sacred tree. And the sacred tree was always next to some sort of water source. So the ancient rite of marriage in the Celtic world where you'd get married, but then after you get married, uh, the water was a symbol of a woman, the tree was a symbol of a man, and a woman, she would put this uh, sheave and tie it to a tree, and he would drink from the water. And the idea is that both of them need to exist together. The tree needs the water, but the water needs a tree for shade. Um, and once you drink from the water or put your sheave on it, uh, that would be the procreative power that would give life to the clan, children. So if one tree was cut down, it meant your clan line is dead. So when the monks came and evangelized Ireland, um, what they would do is where that tree was, they would erect a stone tree. Does that make sense? A, a cross, a Celtic cross, and they'd put it near the water, and then you'd be baptized into the water, into the cross. And so now, the generative life of the clan is not your particular clan, it's baptism, that we all become one clan. Does that make sense? So, Think about it. The Celtic cross looks much different than the European cross. And so this kind of drives me up a wall, but so many things do. Um, is like when somebody looks at a cross, like the San Damiano cross back there, 
and says, oh, you know, a Catholic cross has a corpus on it. What a lie. That's a lie. The early church cross were plain. Then the Middle Ages, they put corpuses on it. Dark Ages, actually. Um, even before that. But the Celtic cross didn't often, it would have, the carving was a story of the community, not a corpus. So, not that you can't have one, but when somebody says, well, if it doesn't have a, a corpus on it, it's not a Catholic cross. And my answer is, really, because my people are Celts, and we didn't have that. Are you saying the Celts from the 400 didn't have a cross? You know what I mean? Like, uh, how ignorant to think your Southern European tradition is what everybody has to. Um, sorry. Um, okay, so we're getting to 10 minutes. So the application of why I think Celtic spirituality would be so an important part to add to your spirituality is so many. Is um, evangelization happens through a community. Um, you don't have to rip people away from their culture. You don't have to throw away their former worlds, but it's the community that evangelizes. I also believe in the Celtic spirituality that stories are more important than systematics. Systematic is like remembering the catechism. I think story is a better way. I also love daily rituals um, that express our um, kind of faith together. Um, I also like the Celtic spirituality of authority without authoritarianism. Um, so I just think that's really common. So going to tie it up for questions and opinions, but... Let's just close with a prayer. So, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. May some of the Celtics' love of ritual prayer, of creation, of learning, of solitude, of journeying, of the cross and community live and breathe in us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, so now we'll open up to questions, objections. And the reason why I took the trouble of um, typing this is, once again, your homework is take one of these seven five of these seven things, and make it a rosary this week. And pray uh, five decades on one of those. Yeah, you have a question. The seat? No, I haven't. <laughs> well, the Druids did believe one who was to come. So they did believe in this prophecy of Christ, but um, if that's what they believe as Druids, why didn't they succeed and become Catholic like the rest of them? Okay, is it too long? You guys want to break? All right, well, I'll see you next week. We're doing, Franc we're going to jump ahead 300 years again and do Franciscan spirituality. So, All right, goodbye. Hello, this is Father Len McMillan. I'd like to take a moment to thank you for listening to our podcast. If they've been a blessing to you, I'd also like to invite you to prayerfully discern supporting the podcast financially. Your generosity would help support the ongoing production and distribution of the podcast. If you'd like to make a donation, you can simply click the link in the podcast description. Be sure to tell us your donation is for the podcast in the comments section of the submission form. Again, 
Thank you for your support as we seek to share the good news of the gospel. May God bless you for your generosity.